Hey everybody, thanks for tuning into this week's podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm a part of the core community at CMYK. We're a bunch of people in Billings, Montana, creating space and community where belief and doubt move forward together. I've been part of CMYK for a few years now, and I absolutely love how it's affected my life. It's changed how I approach spirituality. Um, It's just so refreshing. I love it. But before we jump in, I want you to know everything we do at CMYK depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you who are working with us to live a more beautiful way forward together. So if you love what CMYK is up to and want to be part of the community on a financial level, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to cmykchurch.com. Through your donation, we are able to continue our work and to give away more and more to those in need around us. You can easily give a one-time gift or choose to be a regular part of our creation through a monthly gift of any amount. To those who are giving, thank you. And with that, let's jump into this week's talk. Uh, tonight, we're uh, continuing on in a series that we actually started at the beginning of the year, uh, simply entitled Our Favorite Stories. And we've kind of shifted away from uh, the first month was really talking about Old Testament stories, and then we've kind of shifted and want to spend the next couple of weeks talking about some of our favorite New Testament stories. And so that tonight is where we're going to go. But to talk about what we're talking about tonight, um, I need to let you know that I uh, had a little bit of a depraved childhood. Uh, and that is that my mom was diabetic, and because of that, we had zero sugar in the home most days. It was rare that we would have like one of those fun-sized Snicker bars or something like that, but just because of the fact, I think this is probably part of how awesome of a guy my dad is, he just decided if my wife can't have sugar, then everybody else is off the sugar train as well. Now, that doesn't mean we didn't have sweetener, okay? So equal, the blue equal, I've got so many chemicals in my body, and I'm probably permanently damaged from the amount of equal and you know sweet and low and those kinds of things that I've consumed because of that. Um, but I grew up in a home where I never had regular soda. The only soda that I drank was diet. And so some of my favorites, well, I was was a kid, so all soda was my favorite, if I'm honest. But I really, really enjoyed Diet Mountain Dew. And I remember when I was in middle school, hearing and and my friends starting to communicate, because I'm at that age where I'm starting to have some money and be able to go hang out with my friends alone and those kinds of things. And and I would always communicate to my friends, because it's what my parents told me, diet soda is just as good as regular soda. And I believed it. I really, really believed it. And so I would be at the gas station with my friends and I would pick out diet soda every single time because that's just what I knew and that's just what I liked. My friends are like, what are you doing? You're not diabetic. And I go, I'd have to go into the whole thing where my mom is and there's no sugar in the home and blah, 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 blah. And diet soda, I would always say this, diet soda is just as good as regular soda. And I believed it. In fact, I would have a sip every once in a while, and I would think, yuck, that stuff is gross. Diet soda to this day in our home. If I'm at a fountain machine and Kate asks me to get soda, she's yelling at me, don't get diet, because that's just where I'm going to naturally gonna go, and she hates it. But I remember when I was in middle school, it was one of my, like a distinct memory of going to Albertsons. And we were given allowance to get what we wanted to get for the sleepover. And for whatever reason, we were staying at some friend's grandparents' house, and they gave us each like $30 to just pick out whatever we wanted. And I remember I got two 12-packs of soda, 
And I decided tonight's the night. I'm going to figure this out if this is true or not. So I got a 12-pack of diet soda and I got a 12-pack of regular soda. I'm pretty sure I drank most of it by the end of the night. My friends were on pace with me as well. But I remember that night, something in me clicked. And as silly as it sounds, I had this shakening awareness of I had this belief in this thought and idea that I was just convinced of. And I was working to convince everybody else around me of this thing. But at the end of the day, I have seen the light. And there's this thing called regular Mountain Dew, or just Mountain Dew, I guess, is what you normal people call it. And it's awesome. And it is so far superior to diet Mountain Dew. And I remember going home, and there was only diet soda in the fridge. And continuing to convince myself and tell myself, because a kid, I wanted soda, convincing myself, no, diet soda is just as good as regular soda. But in my mind, I knew that I was broken. That phrase no longer had the proper power that it used to have because I had had my eyes open and my taste buds were now fully alive to the fact that no, diet soda is not the same as regular soda. Now, that's a, obviously a silly story. But it's something that I remember in my life from the standpoint of you grow up with this idea and belief and concept and everything in you is convinced of that until you are exposed to potentially something different and all of a sudden you're wrestling with everything that you just thought you believed to be true. And tonight I want to share a story that is one of those stories for me. And, and up to this point, every story that we've told, there's this optimism, there's this hope, there's this belief and idealism that I bring to the story, and it's why I want to share it and why I want to talk about it. But tonight I want to talk about a story that is one of those things that, for me, begins to shake the ground on which I honestly grew up on, and I begin to question some things about the world around me in a way that, honestly... I, I hope is helpful. <laughs> my goal and my job tonight is not to try and just, you know, tip all of you over and say, well, that was fun, right? And everybody's like, I don't even know what to think about any of this anymore. But my goal is to hopefully find you in a place where this story, I think, is able to do what I believe this story is meant to do. And whatever that is for you, that you would find it to be something good, true, and beautiful. It's a story found in the Gospel of John. This gospel, this story, this telling and narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. And towards the end of the life of Christ, many of you have heard this story before, he comes into this place known as the Last Supper. It's his opportunity to have one last meeting, one last conversation, and teaching, if you will, with his closest followers, his closest friends, because he knows what's coming. This is the night before he is betrayed, the night before he goes and is crucified on the cross. And so he's in this intimate scene, an intimate moment with his disciples, and there's something that happens before. It says this in John 13. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, now don't miss this, knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now I want to stop there for a second because what the storyteller is doing here in this gospel is he's working really hard to set a stage for what's about to happen. And the stage that's being set is not one of somebody that's just, that Jesus is not on this path going, how's this going to go? What's, what's in front of me? What's happening? 
But all the details that are presented are there for a reason to show and to say, hey, Christ fully in this moment is fully aware, according to the storyteller, of what is about to happen. He's in the know. He is aware of the future. Okay. But then for me, where things get really crazy is that last couple lines where it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. The Gospel of John, more than any other story of Christ, does an exceptional amount of work to try and show that Christ Jesus was divine, was the Son of God. That there was something significant about who he was. And so here is John reminding us of this isn't just a good teacher. This isn't just somebody that, you know, had some nice things to say and did some good things for some hurting people. But here is this Christ who all things are in his hands. Who came from God and is headed back to God. This is some of the strongest language that we have to communicate the power and the significance of who Jesus is was. And here's why I find this fascinating. Because John has done everything in his power to be able to say, Jesus, in this moment, knows full well, there's nothing surprising to this guy, that he is the most powerful person in the room. He knows who he is. He knows the significance, the importance of who he is. And so the the question for this story that maybe many of you have heard before is what does power look like in this moment? For Jesus to be in this place where he knows fully he's the most powerful person in the room. What does power look like here? Now many of us, when when we ask this question, we live in a culture, we live in a time, and just within our humanity, I think there's two kind of major categories of how most of us would define power. The power is seen as the ability to gain and the ability to maintain. That someone in power, significance, importance, is someone that has the ability to gain more power, more significance, more stuff for themselves. These are powerful people. Look at all that they have. Look at all of the employees under them. Look at all the people that are following them and listening to them and care about who they are and what they're doing. They're gaining more and more and more. And power looks like someone that is also able to maintain wherever they are and wherever they've come from. That it's not just getting more and more, but they're actually able to hold on to it. And there's some, all of us in this room understand and feel and sense that this is what power looks like. We all grew up with parents over us on some capacity, I hope where it appeared and it looked like they had all the power. They had all the control and all the ability to tell us what to do as children, where to go, where we're going to eat, how we're going to spend our time. Some of us didn't want to play sports in the, in the fall or in the spring, but here I am kicking a soccer ball. Why? Because mom made me. They have all the power in the room. And many of us know what it's like then to say, I want that. And this belief in this idea, the more that I have the ability to tell others what to do, that I'm not dictated to how to live my life, but I'm actually in control. And I'm gaining more and more of that for myself. And I'm able to maintain that. This is something we all naturally desire and see for our lives. We don't want to be in the place where someone is telling us what to do. We want to tell others what to do. And we want to continue to gain and be able to maintain that. You take the reverse of that. We live in a culture where if somebody is not gaining, the business did not grow by 4% the past year, then they are not as powerful as the business, the company, the organization that was able to grow by 4%. 
The person that doesn't have more money than they had five years ago is not as powerful and as significant as somebody that is able to grow their portfolio in such a way that they have more than they did five years ago. And so if, if things aren't growing, moving forward, you're dying. You're not powerful. On top of that, if you're not able to maintain what you already had, in other words, you had this many employees, but then you had to cut to this many employees. You had this many locations for the business, but you had to cut back to this many. You had these, this many followers. You have two, you know, you'd look at a celebrity. They had two million followers on Instagram. Woohoo! They go back to 500,000. There's a part of us within our culture that we all look, wow, oh, bummer. Things aren't going as well for them as it was when they had two million. Why? Because they weren't able to maintain the status and the power that they once had. We all know and understand what power looks like. And so here's this story in John that really messes with me if I start to look at it. Because Jesus in this moment, John has done everything to set the stage. He's the most powerful person in the room and he knows it. And so what does power look like? It looks like this. John goes on in the story and says, Jesus, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It says, when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Again, I fully understand the power that I have, but this is what power looks like. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, Jesus goes on. He says, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This story messes me up because all of a sudden we have this question of what does power look like? And we have this picture that all of us know and sense and feel well, it's the ability to gain more and to maintain what you already have. This is what power looks like. And Jesus shows up with his story, fully aware of his power, and he says, you want to know what power looks like? You want to know what the most powerful person in the room does if they're truly powerful and significant and influential and important and they're doing things right according to this narrative and story? Well, first and foremost, they are in a place not to gain, but they're in a place to give. Now, I know full well, culturally, when we look at this idea and concept of power, this is not a far off idea. Yes, of course, if you are in power, if you have all of the stuff, then we have this cultural expectation of you are going to give back because look at all the things that you have. I mean, how, many, how much within our culture do we hate Jeff Bezos right now because the narrative is he pays zero taxes. And so there's this thing in all of us that says, you are in power, you should give. And here's Jesus in this moment saying, yes, this is what power looks like. That you are in a place that you have so that you can give to those who don't have. In fact, the bulk of the Old Testament, when you look at what's happening with the law and the Jews that were working to follow this Old Testament law, was driven around this concept and idea of there are those with and those without. And the goal, the role, the, the space that those with are to play within this society and within this culture is that they give to those without so that everybody is in the same category of those with. And so here is Jesus in this moment showing that. This is what power looks like. 
that I give what I have to those around me. But it doesn't stop there. Because Jesus isn't just in this place where he just gives of himself. He has this moment, if you remember, where he takes off his garments, he takes off his outer robe, and he's just in his underoos, if you will. And it's in this moment, culturally, being in this state by taking his outer garments off, that it's not just that he's getting comfortable because he doesn't want icky water on his clothes at all. He's taking the position of a servant. It was a customary thing that when you walked into a room, uh, after, especially after some travels, when you walked into a home, that it was the host's role and job to wash the feet of the people that had traveled there. And typically that was done by one of two categories. One was servants or slaves, because that was what was happening culturally at the time. And so, the, you know, this was not the fun job, but somebody had to do it, the slaves. Or secondarily, again, not me, just culture, it was the wife's duty to do that. So I'm sorry, but that's where it was at the time. And so it's in this role that if you were at the lowest of the low in the home, which in some homes, again, sorry, it was the wife in this culture, this was your job. And Jesus walks into this space and walks into this place, and rather than just giving what he has, there's this symbolic work that he does of actually stripping himself of his outer garments and taking the position and the role of a, sa- of, of a slave. In other words, taking the position and the role of somebody underneath, below everybody else in the room. In fact, I love the way one commentator put it. He says, unlike Greco-Roman society, Judaism stressed humility. So this is all throughout scriptural, scripture. Scripture. But like other societies, it also upheld societal roles. Jesus overturns even positions of social status. Like one rabbi, Judah Nahasi, or Hanasi, excuse me, uh, was said to be so humble that he would do anything for others, except relinquish his superior position. Seating according to rank was crucial, crucial. Jesus goes beyond even this. I think it's, this is where things start to get really messy for me with this story. Because we understand and we live in a world that there are those on top and those in power. And it's their job and their role, potentially, to be somebody that gives to those without around them. To just make it rain for the people so that everybody can celebrate all the things that they're giving and helping with. But Jesus goes one step further. And he does not continue to stay in this seat or this position of power and say, look at what I'm doing, how from on high I'm giving you all of these things. Look at how great I am. Look at how awesome I am. But Jesus does this incredibly, honestly, controversial thing culturally at the moment to say, you want to know what power looks like? Power looks like actually getting down below where you are from a position, status, cultural framework, and being in a place where I'm actually working to lift you up because I'm actually underneath and I'm working to push you up. Again, it's a picture of somebody from on high throwing a lifeline and trying to pull somebody up like a fishing line versus somebody that's actually jumping in to the muck and the mire, the mud, and saying, no, actually my position and maintaining my position and my status and my authority, that means nothing here. This is power, to be somebody that is willing to give up that position, to give up that status, to not worry about those things, and to actually work to get underneath that I can lift up those that are below me. This is power.
We see this exemplified in Paul's writing in, in uh, the book of Philippians, his letter to the church in Philippi. He says, do nothing. Again, he's talking to the church. So anybody that's interested in, in following these texts and these ideas and concepts, this is Paul talking to you and to me. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here's who he was. This is what power looks like. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He never played the God card once. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the reason this story is so honestly disturbing for me is because it's not just this one little moment that we find Jesus doing something nice for his disciples and like, well, I'll wash your feet. Sounds great. But the whole concept and the whole idea of this Christ is Jesus coming and radically transforming the idea of what power looks like. That someone that is in a place where they believe that to gain more and to maintain the level and the status that they currently have in culture. Jesus, through his work, story, and through the majority of scripture, is working to communicate a completely different idea and concept of power. They would say that to gain and maintain is not power at all. Actually, it's just greed. You just want more. And all it is is insecurity. All it is is anxiety that you feel like you need to maintain something. All it is is fear that you're living out of. So you and I live in a world where this is power, and so we got to wake up every single day and go kick ass and take names because that's what we do. And meanwhile, the scriptures and the narrative of Christ is like, no, that's just greed. That's just insecurity. That's just anxiety. That's just fear that you're choosing to live out of. Because what power looks like is when you are in a place to whatever is in your hands, you are giving to those without and working to remove any position any significance from who you are to be able to be underneath where someone is to be able to lift them up, to bring value, significance, meaning to who they are. This does a couple things for me. One, it really challenges the idea of God. Many of us know what it's like to have this idea of God, of this all-powerful being is able to do whatever, whenever, however, and this is what power looks like. Many of us have spent so many words, so many minutes trying to pray to an all-powerful being to come and to save us and to rescue us because we believe that there is this powerful God that can do anything. And what Jesus is doing, while there are stories in the scripture, yes, that speak to and point to a God like that, Jesus is coming to actually shape the narrative towards another kind of God, a God that power is seen in stripping of all authority and significance and washing the feet of his disciples. A power that is seen not because he can command the wind and the waves, but because he gives his life on a cross. This is what power looks like. Jesus is reshaping the idea and the concept of God and the divine and how we actually look for and interact with the divine. That maybe... It's not God 
that you get to pray to and to celebrate and to sing to because you are richer than you were last year and you have more stuff and more security than you did last year. How many of us have known that narrative? I'm just so blessed. God has just blessed me so much. Well, according to the narrative of Scripture in Christ, potentially, you've just done really good to get more for yourself. Way to go. Because power looks like your ability, and God's work and movement on planet Earth looks like the ability for you to give more of yourself and for you to be somebody that is willing to continually strip yourself of any significance to elevate those that are below you. It changes the way that we would think about God. It changes the way that we would think about um, others. When we think about what a leader looks like, when we think about what winning looks like and success looks like, it dramatically shapes the way that I see and perceive somebody that everybody else is celebrating as look at how much they're winning. And all of a sudden, this story and the context of Scripture is asking me to wrestle with, is that power? Is that winning? Is that significance? Or is it something else? I I really mean it when I say I'm wrestling with this. I'm wrestling with it because I I want to. I I really want to. Again, it's like diet soda versus regular soda. I want to believe that diet soda is just as good as regular soda. But I sit here tonight, and if I'm honest with you, I feel like I've tasted regular soda. I feel like I've tasted a culture in a world where it seems like those that are just gaining more and able to maintain what they have, no, they're actually winning. And they're actually powerful. And those that are choosing to give of themselves... And to work, to live in the mud and the muck and the mire, to elevate those. We don't talk about them. We don't celebrate them. That's no, I'm not pointing at them naturally and going, man, that, that's winning. Way to go. That's power. I'm just finding myself continually questioning, is diet soda regular, better than regular soda? Is this idea of power, true power versus what I know it to be? I wrestle with it because what does it look like if you just feel like you're trampled on all the time because you're constantly working to elevate those around you and you just feel exhausted and you have nothing left to give? Is, is that power? Because I'm tired all the time? Paul continues on in that passage of Philippians and he says... Continuing on with this idea of, of Christ, he says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there's an outcome to this. And this is where things, I, again, I'm just trying to be candid. This is where things really get squishy for me. It says, Because of this work that Christ did, this power that Christ exerted, therefore God has exalted, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's Paul saying there? That Jesus went through this process. He went through this work to show power. And because of that, there was this response that everybody would see and everybody would know. His name was highly exalted. Everybody would know that that was winning. That was the right thing. 
And again, I'm wrestling because even this narrative of Christ in our culture and in our world, that, that is not being celebrated as winning. And Christ has been transformed in, in a lot of Christian circles and ideas to be something completely different for what it means to win because our, our story is beating other people's stories. We're getting our way more than other people are getting their way. And so Christ is highly exalted. It's just gaining and maintaining. And we celebrate. Look at all the Jesus winning that's happening. Compared to what Paul is talking about in Philippians. No, he, he gave fully of himself. And because of that, there was this elevated, celebrated, yes, that's winning. And again, maybe I'm just living under a rock so someone can help me tonight, but I just am not seeing that in our culture, and I'm not necessarily feeling it, and so I'm wrestling. And I'm wrestling finally with myself and how I'm going to choose to view this concept and idea of what power and winning looks like in my life. Am I somebody that is, is going to just lean into the gain and maintain? Because I feel, man... That feels really good. It's, I mean, that's a sexy beast right there that I'm just like, oh, I could do that. And I know that I would be in a culture that's celebrated. Look at how much you grew. Look at all the things. Da 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 da. Versus being somebody that is willing to say no to that narrative. It's just greed. That's insecurity, anxiety, and fear. I'm not going to live out of that. I'm going to give. And I'm going to work to strip myself of position to lift others up. So I know that this isn't the greatest pep talk ever. (laughs) I get that. But here's what I'm going to leave you with. I'm going to leave you with two stories. And and, uh, I'm just going to ask you, which one, as we come to this table tonight, which one resonates deeper for you? Because as much as I am struggling with this stuff, because I am, I have to be honest that when I see these two stories, there is one that resonates more. And as I come to this table tonight, this picture, an example of everything that we've read and talked about, Christ breaking his body and, and pouring his blood out for the, those suffering around him, that this is the narrative and the idea and the concept that we choose to be a part of us. We partake in together to say, yes, this is my story. Yes, this is power that I come to this and there's some, that there's a deeper resonance behind one of these stories. One of them is a quote. It's a quote from a movie and it says this, enough money and it will make you invincible. Enough to conquer the world and eviscerate your enemies. See, money doesn't just buy you a better life, better food, better cars, better women. It also makes you a better person. You can give generously to the church or the political party of your choice. You can save the spotted owl with money. This is power. This is what most of us wake up naturally every single day and say they're winning in life. Look at all the abilities to give. This is a quote from The Wolf of Wall Street, if you've seen that film. Jordan Belson. Belson? I think so. Belford, thank you. I'm not as an aficionado as you, Carrie. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, this is a great quote because this is what winning looks like. So there's this. Does that resonate with you? Is that winning? Or there's this. Hop in. Who's your friend? 
Come on, Joy, one more time. I got a feeling about this one. crying you're crying here's a cartoon about an imaginary character called bing bong and i mean i intentionally picked that clip because i gotta be honest with you there's a resonance to that story there's something deeper about that 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 yeah, this is imaginary, this is a cartoon, like what's happening, and if you have no clue what's, if you haven't seen it Inside Out, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, uh, but there's something that resonates versus watching somebody have a quote that feels like winning, yes, but if I'm honest, it doesn't resonate as much as something like this, and it's why I continue to come back to this table to be honest about what I'm wrestling with, to be honest about this idea of what does power look like. And to maybe work to realign some things that I have potentially allowed to kind of creep in. So tonight we come to this table and we just ask you the question, what does power look like for you? How does it change your concept and idea of God? Are there ways that maybe you need to readjust? Because again, this is the narrative of Christ. It's been hijacked by a bunch of people that like this gain and maintain mentality and they're working really hard. But I just, I gotta be honest, any honest reading of scripture would say, okay, we've got to deal with this. This is what power looks like. How does it change your view of God? How does it change what power looks like when it comes to others? And maybe a list of what that would look like. And then lastly, how does it change for yourself? What does power look like for you? What are you trying to point towards when it comes to your job, your relationships, your marriage, to be powerful in your marriage, to have a powerful marriage, to have powerful relationships, friendships, success, and career? What does that look like? Tonight we come to this table, and, and it's a wrestling match for me, and, and um, all are welcome to come and wrestle together. And then to leave this place, potentially seeking and working to live out a different concept and idea of power. Whenever you're ready, feel free to come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and receive, and we'll close our time.
Well, thank you for being here. And I mean, this is one of those things that um, I don't think can live in a theological vacuum. It actually is, as Jesus said at the end, if you remember, those who go and do this actually get it. They understand. And I just want to say thank you because this is one of those things that um, I think is only continually pursued in my life personally because there are others here tonight that are saying, yeah, let's, let's wrestle with this together. Um, we're not crazy. It sounds so and feels so different, but there's something here that resonates. It's deep. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of this. And uh, I want to invite you to hang out, chat, have a conversation about any of this stuff or have a conversation about anything else. And as always, feel free to have another beer uh, at the bar. And uh, we hope to see you next Sunday. Two Sundays in a row. It's happening. Can't wait. So thanks, guys. Hope to see you next Sunday. If you need anything, as always, please, please, please let us know. Thanks. Thanks again for tuning in. As always, if there's anything we can do for you, please reach out on social media or through our website at cmykchurch.com. Also, while there, you can find out more about who we are, where we're headed, and how you can get plugged into or give with this unique experimental church. Have a great week, and we hope to see you soon.